can turn over to Romans chapter 13. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans. This morning we want to look at the next section here, verses 11 to 14. We went over verse 11 last week, and uh, we're just going to briefly review a little bit. We're not going to get through, obviously, the outline this morning, so we'll uh, cover the first couple points here. But we've heard an overview of the Reformation, of church history this morning. Um, I trust you were encouraged and that you're already edified. I feel like the job's already been done. Uh, but, and with that history in mind, I just want to uh, remind you, I, I couldn't help to think of some of the, the Bible verses when we read them in, in our Bibles. They immediately bring to mind a certain heroes of the faith or certain Christian leaders back in history because they were so closely aligned with their lives. And as Christians today, we, some of us have what we call life verse or something like that. And some of these were uh, life verses for some of these men in history. Uh, Dave mentioned Romans 1.17 was uh, Martin Luther's verse, the just shall live by faith. Um, or you think of Matthew twenty eight twenty, where Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. That was a life verse of missionary, great pioneering missionary to Central Africa, David Livingston. Um, or Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15, which says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord, your God, redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. That was John Newton's verse. Newton was a former slave of slaves, as he was known. Regarded those words as a description of his early dissolute life and and of God's deliverance of him from it. And there's many different verses. If you're interested in that, there's a book by an Australian pastor. uh, Borham is his name, Frank Borham. And he put a... a, uh, a series of books out called Texts That Made History. And you can look those up. But as we come to Romans chapter 13 here at the end, um, we arrive at these three verses that if you know anything about church history, you think once again of one of these men of the faith, St. Augustine. And God used the words of our text this morning in this man's conversion. And how it came about is kind of an incredible story. Um, St. Augustine's first name was Aurelius, and he never used that name. Only those who knew him used it, and we only know that because they wrote about it. Uh, but he was born in November 13th, 354 A.D. And he came from a mixed pagan and Christian background. His mother was a Christian. His father was not. And uh, he was from a small village, a small provincial town in North Africa, Tegeste. And his parents had, as most parents do, had great ambitions for their son, even though their ambitions differed greatly, one being a pagan, one being a believer. His mother's name was Monica. And she, the passion of her life was that her son one day would become a believer. 
She desired that more than anything. His father wanted him to have a superior liberal education, and by that means eventually become very great and very wealthy. And so Augustine was educated first in his hometown, then at the renowned but notoriously corrupt city of Carthage on the northern coast of Africa across from Sicily. And Augustine was trained in rhetoric, one who made his living by arguing cases of the law or giving speeches. He was brilliant. And he was so successful that he later moved from Carthage to Rome. And eventually in, seven, or in 384 AD, he moved from Rome to Milan, where he had been appointed a government professor of rhetoric. And that post gave him a very high social standing. And it brought him into contact with a lot of influential people in Italy, including people that belonged to the Roman court. And in 400 AD, about 14 years after his conversion, which took place in Milan in 386, Augustine published his Confessions. And this was a book of 13, you might say relatively short chapters, which tells of the grace of God in his early life and how God led him to faith in Christ. And how God continued to work on him. And on the very first page, Augustine wrote this sentence. He said this, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. He meant that of everyone, of course, but it was especially true of himself. And therefore, it was the major testimony of his life. Because this man had tried everything that the world had to offer everything, but he found it all empty. And he was indeed restless until he came to rest in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so God uses the text in this man's life that we're studying this morning, verses 11 through 14. So I pray that you'll follow along as I read these verses for us. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And the capstone of this text, but verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, Paul here reaches this apex in in chapter 13 following his declaration that godly love fulfills the law. We studied that in the past weeks, verses 8 to 10 of, of this chapter. And then he focuses now on the urgency of believers to understand that they need to become more and more like Christ. More and more like their Lord and Savior. I mean, it's Christ himself, beloved, that is the source. He's the power of that divine love that we're called to show others and have in our own lives. And so he comes to verse 14 and he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's basically a summary of chapters 12 through 16. Right here in the middle. Paul gives us a summary. Sanctification. What does it involve? It involves putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That continual stage of spiritual growth after we come to know Christ. We grow more and more each and every day like our Savior. And so he begins here in verse 11 with these admonitions, you might say. And first, in verse 11, he tells us to wake up. In verse 12, he says to cast off. In verse 13, he tells us to walk right. And then finally, in verse 14, he says, put on. And I just want to warn you, as we work our way through this text this morning and even next week, we're going to see that Paul is giving us some things, some admonitions that he expects to be evident in the believer's life. If you're a believer, these are, these are there. Wake up, cast off, walk right. And we're just going to cover briefly the first one, wake up, because we spent an entire message last week on verse 11. And you can get that on the web or on the app. But these admonitions, I want to I warn you, don't sit here this morning and think, oh, great, it's more stuff that we got to do as believers. Great. See, some Christians, unfortunately, feel the weight of having to, you might say, perform to be considered worthy of God's love, of God's acceptance. That's a road to nowhere. I'm a pretty simple person. Um, And so I'm going to make this very simplistic for us here this morning. I want to start with these cookies on the bottom shelf, you might say. And then work our way toward the end of the message and even next week into some more weighty theological issues. But, I mean, if I had to summarize what we're going to talk about this morning, it's not rocket science. It's very basic. Guess what? You're not worthy of God's love. You're not worthy of God's acceptance. It's that simple. So stop thinking you are. You're not even worthy of God's grace. You're not worthy of God's love, his forgiveness. None of us are. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we're all lost, that we're all sinners. It says that we've all, what, fallen short of God's glory. See, God has a standard for us. And we don't hear this often today in churches, but God's standard is perfection. Remember when Jesus says, oh, you want to be, yeah, you got to be perfect as my father's perfect. He told the, the, the Pharisees. Now, the last time I checked, I know that I'm not perfect. I look around the room. I don't see anybody here that's perfect. And to be honest with you, whenever I begin even to feel a little tinge of perfection coming into my life. God reminds me that I'm not. He gave me a wife. And my wife is very clear. She reminds me all the time. You're not perfect. See, the only thing that we're worthy of, beloved, the only thing that we're deserving of, the Bible says, is God's wrath, 
God's judgment. That's what we deserve. And so many times you hear people go before God and, you know, well, God is love. You know, I just want God to be fair. No, you don't. <laughs> that will end you up in hell quicker than anything. I know that's not a nice way to start the message. <laughs> I know it's not touchy-feely. You know, oh, we're going to go to church and be happy. It's kind of a... Tough message to give. But at the same time, I tell you this because as we begin to work through verses 11, 12, and 13, and we begin to feel this temptation that somehow we're called to perform for God. That somehow God is pleased by our efforts to become more, quote, spiritual. I want to tell you this morning that's simply not true. Hate to burst your bubble, but it's not true. The only way that we are able to do these things that Paul is admonishing us to do is because of verse 14. When he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. The faithful, obedient, loving Christian grows spiritually by becoming, what? Increasingly more like Jesus Christ. I mean, that's really what a Christian ought to be. That's what a Christian is. It's one who is clothed, one who is cloaked in the garment with the character, the disposition, the attitude, and the habits and the virtues of who? His Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want you to leave here discouraged. That's not my point. See, God doesn't ever leave us in a place of discouragement. He always offers hope. He always offers a means to fulfill what he's called us to do. He never tells us to go do something and then sits up in heaven and laughs and goes, I know he's not going to be able to do it, but this is going to be fun to watch. Watch him in their misery. That's not the God that we serve. The Bible says that through Christ we are sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. So don't leave here discouraged if we don't finish this message, if we don't get, which we're not going to, the part of putting on Christ. Because he always offers hope. His character becomes reflected in us as we clothe ourselves in Christ. As we clothe ourselves in his righteousness. As we clothe ourselves in his truth and holiness and his love. Remember, that's what Paul just taught us. He said, you have to have this kind of love and don't think it can come from you. It can only come through Christ. It's a divine love. But before the apostle presents that, that vital truth in verse 14, he wants to make sure that his readers are awake. That they're not caught up in some spiritual lethargy and just kind of dozing off. And so he begins here with the first admonition in verse 11. Wake up. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. See, the believer, first of all, is to know the time in which we live. When you look at that verse, you see phrases like the hour has come. The salvation is nearer now. Uh, The night is gone. The day is at hand in in the following verse there. And last week we talked about how time is a limited opportunity. It's very brief. Our time here on earth in the Bible is described as a vapor. It's something that's here and then gone tomorrow. And so the time to heed God's word, the time to obey is now. Don't put it off. There's no time for apathy. There's no time for complacency. There's not even any time for indifference. Think about it. If Paul was writing way back then and it was urgent during his time, think how more urgent it should be for us today. It's always been urgent, will continue to be urgent until the Lord returns. And when he does return, our opportunities for earthly faithfulness, obedience, earthly evangelism, all that will end. There'll be no more time. And judgment will will fall. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, he tells us that every generation has had skeptics. In 2 Peter 3, 4, it says, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, you've been saying this forever. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, we believe in what we call the imminent return of Christ. What that means, biblically, is that it means there's nothing that has to take place before Christ comes back for his church. Nothing. Don't think that, oh, well, politically something has to happen. Or the, No. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back in 10 years. It's imminent. It's something that's expected. The majority of Christians, I think most Christians, have anxious thoughts about Christ's return. J.B. Phillips said it this way, paraphrased verse 11. He says, why all this stress on behavior? Because as I think you have realized, the present time is of the highest importance. See, we are never to stop offering, as Paul says in in Romans 12, 1, our bodies as a living, as a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual, reasonable service of worship. We're always to be properly related to unbelievers as well as believers, to civil authorities as well as church leaders, to enemies as well as friends and neighbors. That's what Paul just got done teaching us in Romans 12 in the beginning of chapter 13. That never stops. Now, it's important to understand here when Paul speaks, besides this, you know the time. He's not referring to a chronological time. He doesn't use the word chronos. He uses the word kairos, which means an era, an epoch, an age. And we looked at this last week in depth. But it's important to understand the particular time of redemption history of which Paul is speaking in the present text, is that which precedes the coming of Christ. So it applies to everything until Christ's return. 
Now, there's many believers, unfortunately, that are either untaught or they're wrongly taught God's word. They have maybe little interest in spiritual things. And as a result, they actually share spiritual blindness, even that of unbelievers. They, they misinterpret the word of God. And it's unfortunate that in their ignorance and lack of interest, that it develops a just kind of a blasé thing about the return of the Lord. It's not that big of a deal. That happened when it happened. And that, that spiritual malady even affected the early church even those in Rome. So Paul says, you know what? It's time to wake up. It's time to get out of your sleep. And it was for that reason that the apostle almost seems to, to shout. You know what? It's, it's already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. You think of that word sleep. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines it this way. A state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease of responsiveness. To events taking place. That's true. So apply it to our spiritual lives. Are we spiritually asleep? Paul calls us here to awake from our slumber. In Ephesians 4.14 he says. Awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. He's not speaking to the unsaved in Ephesians. He's speaking to those who are believers. He's not speaking to those who are spiritually dead. He's speaking to genuine believers who have somehow fell into some spiritual lethargy and laziness and made them even appear and act as if they had no spiritual life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, the apostle Paul tells the believers at Corinth, wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, he says that salvation is nearer here in verse 11 than when we believed. He's obviously speaking about our completion of salvation, he's addressing Christians. Those who have already been converted, those who have already been saved. Well, what does he mean our salvation is nearer? What are you talking about? He's referring to the future and final dimension of, 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 of redemption, namely glorification. None of us are glorified yet. Remember this, justification refers to declared and positional righteousness. When does that happen? It happens the moment we believe. It, ha- it happens when we're saved from the penalty of our sin. And then we have the process of sanctification. What's that refer to? It refers to that lifelong process in our lives as believers that God is continually to work on us, to, to knock off the rough edges, to make us more like the Savior, to grow in practical righteousness. But we await our glorification. The believer's ultimate perfection as a child of God. I mean, aren't you excited about that day when you'll be ushered into his presence and you'll know no sin? You'll receive fully your relationship with God the Father, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. You'll be in his presence forever in a perfect state. 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul reminded us that we need to wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's referring to our glorification. He's referring to that time in the future when either Christ comes back or we die to go to be with him. See, death is not something that a believer has to be afraid of. I mean, you may be a little concerned how you're going to die. I get that. But you know what? The moment you breathe your last, as a believer, the Bible says to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord in your glorified state. What a wonderful thing that is. That's the future aspect of our salvation. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying that's nearer now than when you first believed. The hope of Christ's imminent return to which he appeals should motivate us to live for Christ every waking moment. We're called to live holy lives in anticipation of Christ's return. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11, Paul wrote this. He said, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for what? The blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews says that we should consider our, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Coming to church is a good habit to have. And when you begin to break that habit, it's very dangerous. Being here on a Sunday morning, being here on a Wednesday, being here on a Tuesday with the women or the men's should be the ultimate priority in our lives as believers. Nothing should even come close. That's how important it is. James, in James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, he says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Just hang in there, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8, at the end of all things... The end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. If the church could just express love for each other, we wouldn't get hung up on all these little, you know, well, they said this. Hey, you know what? I love you anyway. Who cares? It's all forgiven. It's all under the blood of Christ. And just move on. Sometimes we just need to stop with all the drama. It's just it's silly. It's not worth it. Because judgment, verse 12, says that it's at hand. That means it's close. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Listen, we're already eternally freed from condemnation. God will never condemn us if we are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We also will never receive any punishment for our sin because the Bible says that Christ took upon our punishment. 
He paid the price of our sin on Calvary. And when he was done, guess what? He said, it is what? Finished. We don't need an altar here to make sacrifices and kind of try to appease God. We don't need to give you a bunch of do's and don'ts that, boy, if you just do this, God will love you more. That's not the way to go. That's, That's a dead end. We're already freed from the condemnation. We already have forgiveness of our sin. Christ took upon himself the sins of all those who would put their faith or trust in him. And it became permanently effective for us the moment we received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But when he returns, beloved, when he returns, there will be judgment of our efforts on behalf of the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, it says, He will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, near the end of his incredibly fruitful ministry, Paul said this, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his, what? Appearing. Are you looking forward to the appearing of Christ? We don't know. We cannot know the hour of Christ's coming. But I can tell you one thing, it's 2,000 plus years closer than it was when Paul was writing this. We're closer. You look at the world events, how things are lining up, man, we're getting close. The Lord himself in Revelation 22 says, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. In Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 37, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Well, what's promised? He tells us in verse 37. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. See, throughout the New Testament, Verses after verse after verse, the Lord encourages the saved and he warns the unsaved concerning the return of Christ. Paul gives that combination of assurance and warning in his second letter of Thessalonians to the believers at Thessalonica. In first in second Thessalonians chapter one verse five, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to rep- repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you obeyed the gospel? 
Have you come to faith in Christ? 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 8, Paul says, Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you don't have any need for me to write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, oh, there's peace and there's security, then sudden destruction will call upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Those of you who have had children who are women, you understand what that verse says. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For believers, that's not going to happen. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night, he says. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Wake up. Understand the time we live in. Well, secondly, Paul moves on in verse 12. And he says, you know what? This night is far gone. The day's at hand. Let us cast off the next thing. The next admonition. Cast off the works of darkness. And put on the armor of light. It's time to cast off the works of darkness. The imagery here, John MacArthur points out, is a soldier who's been engaged in a, a night of orgy and drinking. He's still clad in the garments of his sin. And it appears that he's fallen asleep into a drunken sleep. But the dawn is approaching and the battle is at hand. It's time to wake up, throw off the clothes of the night and put on the battle gear. That's the imagery that Paul is using. When he says lay aside or cast off, it carries the idea, idea of forsaking, of renouncing. And it refers to repentance. It refers to repenting from those deeds of darkness, from those sins that dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord is grieved, beloved, by all sin. But the sins of his own children bring kind of a special grieving process. Ephesians 4.30 says, The Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. That Holy Spirit can also be grieved. In Psalm 109 verse 18, David said, He spoke of a man who was clothed himself with cursing as a garment. You know, when we sin, we, we sin by choice. Don't point your finger to the devil or the people or somebody else. No, you, you, when you sin, you, you sin because you want to sin. We're voluntarily clothing ourselves, picture this, with something that's dishonorable to the Lord, with something that's evil. And it's only in the Spirit's power that we can reverse that decision and lay aside that sin. That's what he's calling us to do. He's saying, you know what? Disrobe yourself from your sin. You're a believer for goodness sake. Why are you keep on putting it on? You don't need to. 
He uses the same terminology in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul does. He tells the believers in Ephesus, he says, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Cast it off. Or in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he told the believers at Colossae, listen to this, this list. He says, put off these things, anger, malice, wrath, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Why is he saying this, Paul? Since you laid aside the old self with its practices. Remember, when we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, all of our sin was removed before God. It was forgiven. It was clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We were justified. That word means that we were counted to be perfectly righteous, even though we're not practically. Because God applied Christ's righteousness to our spiritual account. He clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul was telling the Colossian believers to lay aside this, these sins continually cast off. Anger and wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Cast off the dirty, unspiritual clothes that you once wore. Don't keep on putting them back on. Hebrews 12.1 says that we should lay aside every encumbrance... And the sin that so easily entangles us. First Peter, he tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, Lay aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisy, evil, and all slander. James one twenty one tells us to lay aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When we look at scripture, it it generally, frequently uses the figure of darkness to represent sin. We see that, don't we? Well, here it's described as the deeds of darkness. When you talk to police officers, usually the, the new officers that get hired, the rookies, they're eager to work. And usually they'll end up working the night shift. But you know what? They love it. Because guess what happens at night? A lot of crime. And they get their hands dirty. They love it. You know, the old season guys, I'll take the day shift. That's fine. Why does that happen? Why do people commit sin at night? Well, it's because they can do it easily without anyone noticing. Right? I mean, that's what happens. Job spoke of this in Job 24, verses 13 to 17. He says, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its path. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and the needy. And the night, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. 
For deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. That's Job 24, 13 to 17. And so Paul wants us to understand that, you know what? That is a very serious thing that as believers, we're to cast these things off. He's emphasizing confession. He's emphasizing genuine repentance, laying aside those destructive behaviors that are not honoring to Christ. But then he says, don't just cast this off, but put on the armor of light. And once again, he goes back to this imagery of a soldier. And he's picture this guy, you know, he's all dirty. He's grimy. He's drunk. He's sleeping and the, the, the battle's coming. He's got to cast all that stuff off and put on the clothes of war. The commander orders him to wake up, to take off his night clothes and to put on the armor. Why? Because he needs to go fight in the battle. Do you understand, beloved, that we are in a spiritual battle 24-7? Armor is made for warfare. It's not made for knitting. It's for the purpose of protecting the one who wears it. And by that indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, that works through our new nature in Christ... We have every resource necessary to forsake these deeds of darkness. We even have an armor of light. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, we need this armor to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The plans, the plots. He never stops. He never sleeps. He's always plotting how to take you out spiritually. Even though as believers, that's impossible. He's just going to make your life miserable. He wants to. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, we cannot be spiritually and morally safe in anything less than the full armor of God. Don't you dare go out in that world without being, have the understanding that you are clothed in the armor of God. Why do we need this armor? So that we were able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. See, he doesn't give us this armor and say, okay, now go, go hunt down the devil. You know, take, take command of the devil. Thou bind you, Satan. He doesn't say that. That's ridiculous. That's not what the Bible speaks of. And yet you hear people saying that all the, all the time. I've heard people pray that. I'm, I'm binding Satan. And my question always is, okay, if you're binding Satan, who's unbinding him? Because you know what? He ain't bound. The last time I checked... The Bible refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He's running around doing what he wants right now under the sovereign hand of God. So God says, because that's happening, you have to have your armor on. Girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith. So that you can extinguish those flaming missiles that come our way from the evil one. 
And that we can have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that, that men had given up their lives, that we can actually even have a Bible in our possession. And yet many of us have probably five, ten, maybe fifteen Bibles. We never crack them open. First John, he proclaims in his first letter there, chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So it's the true light which is coming into the world enlightens every man. And he goes on to say there, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, guess what? We lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Why? Because we're in Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, sin and righteousness are as incompatible and mutually exclusive as darkness and light. You can't have both. And Paul admonishes the believers in Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which is the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And down in verse 8, he says, you were formerly in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We're called Christians For a reason. We didn't give ourselves that name. The early Christians didn't say, yeah, what's, okay, we got to have a name for ourselves. What are we going to call ourselves? You know, well, it's the the way. No, No, let's call ourselves Christians. No. You know who gave Christians that name? The enemies of Christ. They said, we got to call this. These people are causing all these problems. What are we going to call them? Well, they're acting like this guy, Christ. Let's call them Christians. Okay, little Christ. And I ask you this morning, are we behaving in a way that honors our name? Ephesians 5.27, that we should live a life without spot or wrinkle. 2 Peter 3.14, that we should be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. See, the Christian who's not living a holy and obedient life is a Christian who does not comprehend the significance of the Lord's return. They don't realize what time it is. On the other hand, a believer who understands the coming judgment and and understands the coming of the Lord is daily looking for his Lord's appearance and looking for ways to please and honor him in consistent holy living. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 11 and 13, it says, those who long for Christ's coming are characterized this way, holy conduct godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're called to put aside these things. We're called to lay aside our own agenda. We don't have time. Time is running out. We need to live in a way that honors Christ 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, 9, it says, We are of the day. Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus 
Christ. Next week, we'll look at what it means to walk right and finally what it means to put on. Remember, you can't do these things unless you get to verse 14. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that the Apostle Paul was moved by your Holy Spirit to write these things and record these things for us. And, Lord, they're just as timely for us today as they were the day he penned them because we believe this word to be inerrant, perfect in every way. It transcends time. It's eternal. And so, Lord, we pray that we would receive the truths that we heard this morning with open hearts. Father, if there's any here this morning who is questioning maybe their own salvation. Maybe they've never put their faith or trust in Christ. Maybe they don't see a life of obedience and holiness. Maybe they're under the constant burden of sin, fear of judgment. The only way out of that is through the cross. The only way out of that is to come to Christ, to give it up, to realize that, you know what? You're never going to dig yourself out of that hole. But he's throwing you a lifeline. He's telling you this morning that, you know what? I died in your place. I paid for your sins. I can remove that guilt, that burden. The moment you put your faith and trust in me, because the Bible says that when you do that, he makes you a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. But you have to cry out to him. You have to acknowledge your inability to save yourself. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Father, we also pray as believers that we would realize that time is fleeting. We don't have time to mess around. We don't have time to just pretend to enjoy this temporary life that you've blessed us with. That we should be about what you're calling us to do, to win the loss for Christ. What are we doing as believers to accomplish that? Are there people at our work? Are there people in our home? People in our neighborhood that have yet to hear even one word of faith from our lips? Are our lives living in a way that they look at us and realize there's something different? Maybe we're not living the Christian life. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to turn back to you, trust in you to use us once again for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.